Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Hello and welcome to Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette. On this podcast, we explore everything and anything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. And for me, few things inspire more wonder and awe and happiness and joy than the movie You've Got Mail. (laughs) That's going to be a huge part of the discussion today, um, but we're also talking all about the writer, director, journalist, Nora Ephron, who you probably know from her movies, but if you don't, this will be a great introduction for you. We uh, do a deep dive into uh, sort of the power of story and language and falling in love with words and New York in the fall, and uh, there's just so, so much goodness here. All thanks to the fact that I got to talk to the amazing Rachel Sherlock. I was so thrilled to have her on the podcast. It had been a long time coming. We'd been planning, uh, you know, to, to do this, I think, since the spring. I know our emails go back to at least June. So I was so happy we were able to coordinate it and make it happen. If you're not familiar with Rachel Sherlock, I'm so happy to introduce her to you on this podcast. Uh, she's a writer and podcaster based in Dublin, Ireland. She has a background in music and English with a master's degree in Viking and Anglo-Saxon studies from the University of Nottingham. She has worked in a variety of roles in the publishing industry, written for a number of Catholic publications, including Dappled Things, The Irish Catholic, and Levin Magazine. And she hosts her own podcast called Risking Enchantment, which explores art, culture, literature, and more from a Catholic perspective. So really, uh, she's just wonderful. And if you are not familiar with her podcast, cannot recommend it enough. Uh, If you like this podcast, I know you'll love hers. So uh, please do go check it out. Uh, But I really, really hope you enjoy this conversation. I think you will. It is super cozy and fall and um, just filled with so much just, uh, I think, just joy and fun insights into, um, into the power of happy endings and you know, powerful heroines and uh, literary uh, love stories. So it, it was so much fun to talk to Rachel. Um, we also talk about at the end how maybe uh, about our favorite movies. Uh, both of us agree You've Got Mail is one of them. And we both also love The Godfather, which we thought was uh, sort of an interesting pairing. But it was only after I had stopped recording that we realized maybe it isn't such an odd pairing after all, because The Godfather is actually heavily referenced <laughs> throughout You've Got Mail. So um, maybe it's not so odd. Maybe maybe they are a great pair, uh, a pair to have together. If you're new to the podcast, uh, or if you just like to follow along uh, with me, you can go to bornofwonder.com. You can contact me there anytime. Love to receive your emails. I would so appreciate any reviews that you leave for the podcast on iTunes. You can leave a star rating on Spotify. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, it is just, I cannot thank you patrons enough. It, it is, it means everything to me. I'm a little behind uh, on my letter writing, but I'm catching up this week. So a lot of letters are going out. Thank you letters. If you would become a patron and you would like a thank you letter, please feel free to um, send me your address. I would love to send you one. 
Uh, but really, your support is is so vital to the podcast, and it just it means a lot to me. Um, so thank you so much. If you would like to become a patron, it's only two dollars a month, and uh, you can find the link in the show notes uh, or on the website. But without further ado, let's launch into this conversation with Rachel Sherlock, all about Nora Ephron, You've Got Mail, and the power of words. So I was trying to think about, um, you know, our first uh, encounters, and I think that like many people, I end up meeting through the podcasters. It was like on Instagram, probably. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I had your podcast yeah. had been recommended to me um, by my friend Ellen, who's going to be a, a guest at some point on this. But she's like, Katie, this podcast is like every single topic is something you would love. And when I went through your archive the first time, I was like, uh, yes, it is like every single one. So totally a, uh, you know, a kindred spirit there. So um, I remember encountering your podcast. And then I think we started chatting and DMs and mm. always interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm trying to remember because I, I can't remember. I feel like I followed your Instagram um, before. I knew that you had ever listened or heard of the podcast. So I don't know. Right. Yeah. Came chicken first. or egg. But um, yeah. So mutual fan club, um, which is always fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's such a pleasure to get to talk to you. It's like you said, kindred spirits. The podcast is a really fun way of, of encountering people and finding finding your kindred spirits across across a wide range of geographies yeah. and you know, all of those paths of life. Well, I have to ask you, and you, I know you even like mentioned this on your website and everything like this, but I still find it crazy that your last name is Sherlock and your roommate and frequent, you know, co-host is Watson. Like, did, was that when you, did you know each other before or did when like one of you applied, were you like, we have to live together because these names, like, it's just an obligation that we live together, like, because these names are too good. (laughs) It was a weird combination of things. I, Phoebe who you mentioned is my friend and, and co-host on the podcast for uh, quite frequently mm-hmm. at least. Um, but I knew her brother first. Her brother was in my music degree in our, our college. We were in the same class and it was a relatively small class. So I knew who he was. And then by complete coincidence, my brother was looking for a place to stay in his second year of college. We both went to the same university, which was the University of Cork. And he had met a girl at the Christian Union and her name was Heather and she just happened to be dating um, Matthew Watson who was in my music class and they were looking for a housemate so he was the one who ended up living first with Matthew and it turned out his sister Phoebe so it was it it was this combination of brothers and sisters and sisters and brothers (laughs) so there was Um, even more than one Watson and Sherlock duo out there that's great oh in in my final year of university in uh it was all four of us in the one house and there was two Sherlock's and two Watson's and then another one of our friends who was called Darina Cronin and uh so we used to call her Arthur Cronin Doyle, <laughs> <laughs> just to round out the set. I uh, but yeah, love it. There was, there was two sets: two two Sherlock brothers, two Watson, uh, two Watson sisters. <laughs> uh, the other way around: two Sherlock, two Watsons. Anyway, and yeah, then as it happened, when I was moving to Dublin, Phoebe, who is a little bit younger than me, was just finishing university at that stage, and she 
uh, was looking for somewhere to live in Dublin. And we thought, well, it worked at university, yeah. so why don't we do it in Dublin as well? And yeah, so it's, yeah, we've been living together for a while. The mm -hmm. rental situation in Dublin is a little bit stressful. So once we once we got onto an apartment, we weren't going to let go. So. Hang on <laughs> so. to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a, so, I'm a frequent yeah. uh, watcher of House Hunters International. And mm -hmm. whenever Dublin is there, they're like, yeah, there's nothing to, you can't like, you can't really live here. Like, I don't know, like, there's nothing to rent. There's nothing to, so yeah. um, good for you guys finding a place and so if anybody listening, go listen to Risking Enchantment and you can listen to Sherlock and Watson, you know, just getting deep dives, lots of clues into literary, <laughs> literary life, Catholic life. So I just love that. I think it was totally meant to be. So absolutely. Um, so our topic today is sort of rom-com fall fest, really all about Nora Ephron, who mm -hmm. I think we both just love. Um for many reasons, but um, what do you think just in general? I know for myself this time of year, October, it's time when I like really just wanna cuddle up with a good movie and I frequently find myself being drawn to, um, you know, a good romantic comedy or something, but especially a good uh, Nora Ephron movie. Um, what do you think it is about this time of year? If there's something specific? Uh, gosh, I think, I mean, I do think the thing about, and we're obviously going to be talking about You've Got Mail a lot being so prominently autumn-based, but really that film covers every season. It goes through the year, but I think because it starts in autumn, that's the one you associate it with. And I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about, I don't know if this is something a lot of other people feel. I know I'm definitely maybe not the norm in this, but I spend a lot of time categorizing books and films and music in my head into the different seasons because I like to kind of really indulge in those things in their appropriate season and so I'm always looking for what what is a really great summer movie or what is a really great spring book which is a kind of interesting question but yeah I think there's something about the way that Nora Ephron really richly um decorates her films or like <laughs> like they're rich in detail I think it's something that's really beautiful like I think you know in you've got mail you've got these great apartments that are so beautifully furnished there's something so homely and cozy and lived in uh, in terms of the way that she films her her stories that they're very I don't want to say realistic because they're very idealized at the same time but they have the kind of deep texture of real life uh, with all of our our different jumpers and our outfits and our stacks of books and our things that we own and the way that we kind of inhabit our lives and so there's something about that for autumn as well i was just talking about it in my own podcast about autumn and how that retreat inside and building up your space with decorations and that kind of and and the way that nature is also kind of putting on a show at this at this time with the leaves and the the, the color as well that there's something very decorative about the season and there's something very decorative about her films as well yeah I, I always think of that um one scene in when harry met sally when they're walking in the park and it's just like this just explosion of you know fall foliage behind them and um meg ryan has on this like fabulous hat and like beige sort of pantsuit i think and um it's just such a like it's, you just think this is just, you know, Central Park in the fall, like there's really nothing better. And I think that in many of her movies, yeah, and you've got mail, you know, the bouquets of freshly sharpened pencils and um, 
it is. It's romantic, but it's relatable. And actually, when we watched You've Got Mail uh, last week, both my husband and I were commenting. We were like, this looks like a real apartment, like a nice apartment, but like not a film set. Uh, you know, like, like uh, I think a lot of like especially New York set like romantic comedy, it looks very like sterile and uh, just like, OK, some, ex- you know, it's always like some marketing executive at the in their, you know, f- flat or whatever. And it doesn't look real. But, um, you know, Meg Ryan, she has like a big poofy bed and she's got like books on her nightstand and it's just super, super cozy. So I do think that is a big part of it is the aesthetic. The uh, there's a, I think there's an Instagram account called Nora Efron Interiors. Uh, oh, there is. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> can, can confirm. Okay. So yeah. that, um, yeah, like there is a whole aesthetic to her movies that is like hyper, like just cozy and wonderful. So. Yeah, I think it's because she really cherishes those small details, and uh, in, in 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 quite a few of her films, but I think especially in You've Got Mail, there is that theme of like what there is to love about a small life, and I think it's because she was so in love with her own neighborhood, um, and she wrote about that as well. That how much she loved the Upper West Side, and You've Got Mail in particular. I think Harry and Sally is more about when Harry met Sally is more about the whole of New York, whereas uh, You've Got Mail is definitely the Upper West Side where she lived. And it's a real love letter to that to that neighborhood. Uh, and I was lucky enough to, when I went to uh, New York, I've only been to America once and I was in New York for my cousin's wedding in actually upstate New York. But me and my brother went to uh, New York City for just a couple of days and we did lots of really fun things and I made sure that we did things that he was enjoying but on our last full day I was like <laughs> you're gonna have to put up with this I'm going to the Upper West yes. Side oh. doing a tour of You've Got Mail <laughs> amazing amazing you're just gonna have to be okay with that (laughs) fine yeah absolutely I mean you can't not I mean the upper it is beautiful it it just is I always like I'm not a city person at all but when you walk around that neighbor it just the architecture that it has a neighborhood feel um it's just it's so lovely I mean if you have a couple million to spare I recommend you look there (laughs) um but but it really is um I know that wasn't the case when Nora Ephron first moved there but um it is uh, it, it is a, a neighborhood with like a real feel to it. And I think you're right that it is a neighborhood movie, which I think is why it is cozy. Is like it's not just about Meg Ryan's, uh, about Kathleen Kelly defending her shop, but she's also like this can be the book district and the neighbors just try to romanticize what's going to happen when Fox Books comes. Well, it'll be great. Well, we'll just have lots of bookshops. This will be the book district or something like that. So... Um, yeah. The existential threat of a big um, of the big bad uh, Fox books is not just to her personally, but to the identity of the neighborhood. So, um. absolutely, and I think I, I guess a little bit like you, I'm definitely a countryside girl at heart. I grew up in the countryside. That's where I like. I think it's, it's always going to call for me. But in contrast to some of my more countryside friends, I do actually love cities, mm-hmm. and I think there's some really beautiful about cities and I've been sold on New York City Mm. from so much media that I've consumed there's just something about it and I would say You've Got Mail and even uh, When Harry Met Sally have been big parts of that but I think you're right that what she does is so compelling for 
I think people who both like cities and like the countryside mm. is that she gives it this small village feel while setting it in the kind of grandeur and excitement that is a big city, you know, that there is, she's kind of pulling out the best elements of both, you know, and I I don't quite know <laughs> whether this was ever a reality in, in New York City, but, you know, you've got that scene of the, um, the autumn or the harvest fair that mm. Joe Fox brings his, his I love that. Young, <laughs> young relatives to. Uh, but it's almost like the Gilmore Girls stars yes. hollow, like placed in New York City. Right. So you get the best. It's like small town inside mm. New York. So um, best of all worlds for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I love cities. I love visiting them. And um, I love watching films and things like that that bring out uh, like the very like sort of distinct energy and culture of uh, of specific cities. And especially since we live in such like a sort of homogenized age, uh, I love mm -hmm. when we get to experience things that really have like their own feel, like in a local yeah. feeling. So even though maybe a little bit of it, I think all of Nora Ephron sort of walks the line between reality and fantasy, but it's like mm -hmm. just enough of both that we can sort of experience it authentically. Um, she does such a lovely job at that. Yeah, and I think it's, like you said, the idealized version. It's almost like what our hearts kind of yearn the city to be, especially like we said about independent shops and uh, communities that kind of support family living and these kind of elements that we know can be in an ideal world part of a city, but are often squeezed out more and more so as we see by different, different forces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's, it, it's, it's that quality of yearning, which I think is also really appropriate to romantic comedies. And she's so good at it. And I love her description. I actually have a quote here from her. She wrote about her uh, apartment in the Upper West Side, which was in this, I've looked it up, this amazing building, which ha goes around in a square and has a courtyard in the middle. And she says that um, most people who don't live in New York City have no idea that New Yorkers have exactly the same sense of neighborhood that supposedly exists in small town America. In the Apthorpe, this sense is magnified because the courtyard provides countless opportunities re for residents to bump into one another and eventually learn uh, learn one another's names. At Halloween, those of us with small children turned the courtyard street lamps into a fantasy of pumpkin-headed ghosts. In December, the landlords erected an electric menorah, which coexisted with a, a Christmas tree covered in twinkle lights. Oh, I which love that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe she's fantasizing it even in her own writing, but it sounds amazing. And I think it's actually kind of interesting. I don't know whether you've seen this series, but the um, I think it's on Disney Plus, the series um, Only Murders in the Building. I've been dying to see that, but I'm not a subscriber to where wherever it is. So but I hear it's really good, right? I mean, it is really good. I thought it was really fun. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it feels like they're trying to conjure up a Nora type New York I think theirs is a little bit more labored I, I, she, she does it so effortlessly but definitely there and interestingly although they call it something else that I'm pretty sure they filmed the apartment sequence in that uh, that particular apartment block that she's describing oh, wow there. that's so wild. I don't know whether that was like a reference mm -hmm. or a callback inspired by Nora Ephron mm -hmm. because there are definitely elements of that series that feel like they're pulling on that romantic New York yeah. idea. Yeah, 
That's so interesting. That's so interesting. And all like just this is kind of like a sidebar about sort of you were saying like we're just saturated with like New York in the media, but it's like <laughs> it's a very romanticized New York, right? Because every sort of version of New York we're presented with, it's like these small scale village New York versions, whether it's literally the village mm-hmm. or not. But I mean, even in shows like Friends or something like that, I mean, yeah. it's about all these friends living together. And um, <laughs> there's like a really funny Seinfeld episode where. Um, Kramer makes everyone in the building put on a name tag so that they can all get to know each other. And I just think Seinfeld pokes fun of at our sort of <laughs> our sort of like cozy wishes so well. And like Jerry hates it, you know, because he's like, now I have to say hello to everybody. <laughs> but um, but yeah, but clearly we are sort of longing for we want like sort of the excitement of the city with that small um, family feel. Even the fact that like Kathleen, you know, when um, the kids go in, she's the story lady. Like you can imagine if you lived in that neighborhood, you'd take your kids there and they mm-hmm. she knows all the kids and everything like that um so i mean we haven't even gotten into our full discussion of you've got mail yet so i'm getting ahead of myself but um we'll go into that even more but how were you first introduced to Nora Ephron because i mean she's a director she's a writer um the, how did you were, was it through her films was that your first encounter with her yeah um in some ways it's a slightly convoluted story but it was it was you've got mail and i I have to admit, I come from a family where we did not, I did not grow up on rom-coms at all. Uh, my dad was in charge of family movie night. And so it was usually uh, you know, well-received action, fantasy, you know, those kind of thrilling movies or very intense uh, foreign language movies. <laughs> that was, I like that. <laughs> that was the scale. It was either like Lord of the Rings or I don't know, Die Hard or something like that, or it was um, foreign language movies of varying levels of sort of comprehensibility. <laughs> that is such like a specific type of dad like recommendation. Like I can definitely picture some people I know like very similarly planning that for their families. <laughs> yeah, and so maybe because of this sort of environment that I grew up in, I definitely as a teenager was so above all of those like girly things like rom-coms and love stories. I, I thought I was too cool for school, you know, like <laughs> this was, I, I didn't, I didn't have any kind of uh, idea of myself as someone who might love uh, rom-coms, but I did come across You've Got Mail on the TV mm. back when, you know, it was only on when it was on. And I, I probably didn't even get to watch the full thing because you know that was that was the era you know dinner was din- right. dinner was ready so you had to stop watching the movie then. yep yep <laughs> um but i saw you've got mail and fell totally in love with it that i think i think my bookishness was able to prevail over my prejudices against uh rom-coms and i remember asking my dad to buy it for me for Christmas on DVD because it was not the type of film that if I'd gone into a store in Kilkenny where I lived that it was not going to have You've Got Mail. So I had to ask my dad and I remember him being like, really? Okay. (laughs) And then clearly clearly his estimation of it contributed to him then forgetting to get it for me for Christmas Mm -hmm. and I had to go him and be like I know like I'm really grateful for, for my presence but please I really you want you've got mail <laughs> it was this whole like rigmarole and palaver and I really distinctly remember it because I finally got the DVD and I marched myself off to the sitting room and I was like I'm gonna watch it and everyone else can go and wait for me because I'm gonna watch the movie now that I finally got it and about 15 minutes in my dad wanders into the sitting room and he goes oh I remember this movie this is a good movie and so <laughs> 
the rest of it. Oh and I gosh. remember being both like vindicated and frustrated that there. <laughs> but I think it was a. It was actually kind of an important moment because it was the. You've got mail was the the film that kind of confounded both mine and to a certain extent my dad's expectations of the genre that actually this is a good movie this is this isn't i guess you can still categorize like a silly Mm rom-com you know a a more slapstick or a more crude one that like this is something that's really high quality and in some ways it's become like that moment and there's there's a good 10 years between that moment and this but um at the start of COVID, I was staying with my parents for the first lockdown and it actually began, my, my dad's tastes in movies so kind of changed and we began this tradition of watching rom-coms together oh. out of nowhere <laughs> that I didn't expect at all. And he suddenly goes, no, I want to watch this. And now, now it's something that he and I share and it's such a beautiful thing that oh, I really appreciate. I love and that. It feels, like, it feels like it has this genesis all the way back in, in, in my teen mm-hmm. years with you've got mail breaking through the mold of our, our prejudices. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I love that. Yeah. You've got mail is such a unique movie and it does. Uh, I think anybody who is skeptical of the genre and I understand why there are a lot of really bad rom-coms, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so this is the one you've got to go watch. But um, yeah, I was trying to, I must've seen maybe you've got mail when I was a teenager, but actually my husband watched it like all the time growing up with his sister and his mom, cause they were obsessed with it. So, and he's a very bookish guy and he loved it. Like he was just unashamedly like, I love this movie. This is great. So I think we watched it together a couple times and then it became like a, you know, uh, we would quote it to each other all the time and stuff like that. And uh, we actually, one time we watched it and we still have like the list, like we were writing down all the best like one-liners because we were like, we need to like open, (laughs) really this is a very niche thing, but maybe maybe some listeners will be interested. I want to open like an Etsy shop of just you've got mail, like one-liners, like, you know, you say like, good night, like dear void, like have that on some pajamas or something. You're going to have, anyway, endless possibilities. So yeah, we love that movie but um I do also remember reading probably like in grad school like just looking for like some I was really into reading essay collections like I was reading Joan Mm -hmm. Didion and um other people like that and Nora Ephron came up frequently as like a great essayist um Mm -hmm. and I read her essays and I loved them um most of them are collections of when she was a magazine writer um and a journalist and she's so funny but she's also very uh like very insightful i think and she was you know she was part of the the women's movement and things like that and she has some um very interesting observations about it i mean she talks about what it's like going to one of those um consciousness raising groups and she's a little cynical about it um and it's just it's just through this wonderful just view she has on the world i think Um, where she's sort of simultaneously a cynic and also like a deep romantic optimist, which is like to have those two things in combination is amazing. And you can see that evolve through her essay collections, like from her first one, which is Wallfowler at the Orgy, to all the way to like her last one, which is I Remember Nothing and Other Reflections, which she wrote when she was um, very ill with cancer, um, but nobody knew. She never told anyone she was sick. And so knowing that sort of in retrospect, uh, it's like her last essay is like things I will, things I will miss. And it's just a very 
sweet list, you know, of like, she's like, you know, of course, she says her sons and everything like that. But she also says like, you know, good pasta and like, you know, just all these like, um, wonderful, like values that um, she sort of cobbled together during the course of her life. But yeah, so I I love her writing. Um, Heartburn. I, I don't know if you ever read that, but that is a very scathing novel about her divorce from Carl Bernstein of Watergate mm-hmm. fame. Um, found out he was having an affair when she was like eight months pregnant with her second. Um, and uh, yeah, this this uh, this uh, this book uh, is a fictionalization, but a very loose fictionalization. So. Um, if you are a fan, maybe you've only watched her movies, I would recommend people also look into her writing because there's sort of this whole other side to her as well, which I find equally fascinating. Yeah, I haven't actually read uh, much of her writing. I've read a few essays here and there, uh, although I did read quite an extensive, I had to edit quite an extensive article about Harper. <laughs> so I haven't, I haven't read it, but I, I have uh, delved into it a little bit. But I do love that... I don't know if it's a genre, but I don't know, as a, uh, as a woman and who does writing or creative work, I think it's so inspiring to see these kinds of voices. Like I actually love, for me in my head, at least this kind of a genre of strong, literary, funny New York female writers. Like I'm thinking like Fran Lebowitz or um, there's a book called 84 Charing Cross Road, which is a, they're the real letters of a, um, a New York writer called Helen Hanf that she wrote to the second-hand bookshop in London that she used to buy all of her books from because it weirdly was cheaper to buy them from London than it was to get them because there was essentially no second-hand books in New York readily available. So she would, instead of buying new books in New York, she would get them second-hand in London. And she wrote these hysterically funny letters and became friends with all of the people in this shop in London. And again, they're very literary, they're very funny. And I think actually in some ways, you can so see it in Nora Ephraim's work as well, that there is this combination of loving literature and loving words and that kind of ability to see the funny side of things and write in a very funny way. Uh, I used to work for a book website and I would write quite a few articles on trying to convince people that a lot of classic literature is very funny <laughs> and opening yourself up to see it that way. Because in, like I said, to me, there's a kind of correlation between loving language and loving literature and also loving humor and being able to capture the funny side of something is a, is a very satisfying literary achievement, I at least I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, an interview with Nora where they asked if she, like, what what do you wish you had written? And she said, oh, a lesser sentence of Jane Austen. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But yeah, she has that sense of that literary history behind her and, and loving it and mm-hmm. being a part of it. Yeah, there's... um one of her sort of famous one-liners talking about sort of the role that writing had in her life is that um, this was apparently something her mother used to say. If both her parents were uh, film writers, they wrote they wrote the um, the movie Desk Set, which has uh, Catherine Hepburn in it and Spencer Tracy, which is a great movie I would recommend also. But um, her, they said, you know, when uh, when you tell a story, uh, like it, like if you go out and you slip on a banana peel. Either you can have it be everyone's laughing at you 
or if you tell the story, then you're in on the joke and it becomes a laugh. So it's like she sort of had this philosophy of that life's um, difficulties and tragedies, like you could, you can, if you can claim it in uh, in the written word, if you can, if you can claim the story for yourself, then you. Uh, then you win, you know, you can play it for the laugh, you know, and I see that even in Heartburn, which is not, it is funny, actually, parts of it. Um, But it's also very sad, but it's like, but it was her sort of reclaiming that sort of uh, terrible moment in her life. And Mm -hmm. we see that play out in her movies, too, I think, is the way that like how we talk about our lives and how we write them um, really matter. And we see that a lot in... um, in You've Got Mail especially, but also in like Sleepless in Seattle where they don't even see each other until the very end of the film. Um, mm-hmm. But they've fall, you know, she's fallen in love with just his words, you know, just um, the way he's talked about, um, about his, his late wife um, said there's something, you know, in the way that he speaks. Um, there was actually an article that you sent me from The New Yorker, which I had read a while ago, but um, I was really good. It's, it's sort of touching on what we've been talking about, where Nora Ephron is sort of this contradictory person um with being known for her rom-coms and everything like that but also um sort of this scathing writer at times but there's a quote i i jotted down from it that was if efron has a lasting legacy as a writer a filmmaker and a cultural icon it's this she showed us we can fall in and out of love with people based solely on the words that they speak and write words are important choose them carefully and certainly don't cling to a myth just because it's lovely It's only in pushing past lazy cliches that a love affair moves from theoretical to tangible, from something a girl believes to something a woman knows how to work with. thought that was great. Yeah, wonderful. And even, you know, when Harry met Sally, I think it's, they spend about 10 years talking at each other (laughs) before they ever become romantically (laughs) engaged. Yeah. And and also also in uh, Sleepless in Seattle, it's um, Tom Hanks's character speaking on the radio, but it's also the letter that she sends that That's his right. son reads that is a big catalyst for the uh, for the story. So yeah, I think there is that love of language, and I think I read in one of the articles how you know her mother was in some ways quite difficult in person, but she found out that she was a wonderful correspondent <laughs> and that in some ways that's also a gift that you know even just being able to express yourself in writing when you find it difficult in real life is is its own kind of gift in some ways as well yeah i know she really she had i mean all um i think it was four daughters um they're four efron sisters and uh i know they all had a difficult relationship with their mother who they like simultaneously really admired, but um, she also became an alcoholic later in life. And I think it was a very difficult family situation, but she was known when Nora was at camp for sending these just like intellectually rich, raucous, hilarious letters that Nora would read out loud to her, you know, campmates and then later on in college as well. And uh, so clearly there was this, um, yeah, this like respect and understanding that we can, we can, reclaim relationships and identities through the written word and you know I mean I think we've all experienced that where it's like sometimes it's easier to write something than it is to talk about Mm -hmm. it um and you know I think you've got mail what's so wonderful too is it's really it's about email but it's also it's like letter you know these are letters these emails you know um and 
they're taking this is not a text uh not one-off little things and you know they fall in love solely they have no idea who the they literally don't know who the other person is they don't know their name or anything like that they're they but they've fallen in love with what they say which is um you know in a very superficial world is i think saying an awful lot actually yeah and because the people and she does a really great trick in that film and it's it's kind of similar in in sleepless in seattle in that you've got these two characters who are already in relationships with other people and I think more often than not, if that's the premise of a story, it's hard to make that compelling and not just you're rolling your eyes at someone who is at the very least kind of emotionally cheating on that relationship. And Nora kind of pulls it off in a way that doesn't feel either hollow or um, makes you dislike the, any of the characters, really. I mean, you know, the the significant others are <laughs> kind of silly in some way. But maybe I they're... love them. <laughs> they're not. They're equally not specifically bad no, people. No, no. Joe Fox's girlfriend is probably the closest to it, but she's not a villain. She's not like an antagonist. She's just, you know, got different values in some ways. <laughs> yes. But uh, she's so good at you know, contrasting what should work on paper that like both of these people that they're seeing are like the people you would expect them to date and the mm. people that tick every box and yet they're not really engaging with their mind and the way that they want to express themselves and their kind of deeper longings. And it's this, you know, epistolary relationship that they have with a stranger that's actually doing that. And it's purely based on, like you said, these these great letters that they're writing each other and there's something kind of deeper about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some, I don't remember the exact line he says, but it's um, Tom Hanks's character, Joe Fox, with his father, who's just like had his fourth, like, I don't think they were married yet, but his like, you know, mm -hmm. his latest relationship had fallen apart. And, uh, you know, he said, well, now I just, the, the father says, you know, now I just have to meet somebody else. Like, that's the easy part. And uh, Joe Fox says like, oh, yeah, just go out and meet somebody, the one single person that your soul is meant to, like, connect with for life. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, have I ever met anybody like that? I'm not talking about that. <laughs> um, so clearly, like, Joe is, that's what he's looking for, you know, and that's what Kathleen is looking for, too. They aren't just, like, looking to meet somebody, um, you know, who just, you know, they connect with or something like that on a more superficial basis, but they really are looking for that soul connection and i think what Nora efron is saying is that that soul co co connection is through language and through um at least in their case and of course you have this backdrop of books you know that like just this ode to the written word um that is you know kathleen's whole life and also joe fox's whole life um in a different way maybe um but that sort of this even just the aesthetic literal backdrop that we are watching them in bookshops the whole time. I think that that does got kind of put in our minds like this, you know, the value of words. And then um, and then they're they're monologuing the whole time about uh, talking, uh, reading out their letters to each other. And I just I don't know quite how she how she pulled it off uh, having a love story work with someone who's driving the other person out of business. Like, it's just like, it, and they, she doesn't shy away from like, just how bad it is. You know, I mean, there's this one scene, you know, where Kathleen's like, I'm heartbroken. I feel like my mother has died all over again. Like, this is like the worst thing that could ever happen to me. 
So um, it's not like she tries to gloss over just how devastating this is, you know, Um, and that we still root for them is crazy, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I think I was thinking about this because I was thinking as much as I hate to see her be run out of business it's so painful it's you know like you said in some ways i'm amazed that i can enjoy this movie that has this horrible plot point in it but i was thinking about how actually completely necessary it is for the story to work first of all just on a purely basis of it can't be too saccharine it can't be too sweet you can't have oh the bookshop is saved and they fall in love and everything's happy because i think you know as you mentioned Nora Ephron had her own experience of heartbreak and reality. And I think that's not as much as these stories are idealized in some way, they can't just veer totally into the sweet and saccharine. There has to be an element of, of reality to the, the complexities of life. And then the other thing is that, you know, the, the love story has to be hard won. Like, you know, they reference Pride and Prejudice a lot in the movie and and it's not a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, although there are some kind of elements within it, you know, his power imbalance of being much more rich and successful and having this big empire of, of shops versus her and being kind of, you know, the gentleman's daughter owning the <laughs> the independent bookstore in comparison to his megastore. Uh, but Uh, You know, the reason why Pride and Prejudice is so compelling is because it's a hard won romance that you do actually have points in the book where you say, well, they couldn't possibly get together after all of this, after all they've been through, after all they've said. And similarly, with You've Got Mail, you have to actually see that there is a real obstacle to them getting together. Once they kind of start realizing that they like each other, it can't just be like, I think so many movies make this mistake of, you know, it's either that, oh, this would all be solved if they just told each other how they felt. Uh, or there's some very convoluted and unbelievable reason why they can't just come out and say that they're in love. Uh, this is an example where they have to actually reckon with something, which is that he has run her out of business. He has taken her um the, the what had previously been the kind of motivating force of her life and and what makes it work at least to me so well is that because they both sort of operate on two different levels in being the person on the other end of the emails and the person that they're interacting with in real life uh that at the same time that joe fox is taking away her business and kind of you know, pulling the rug out from under her. He's also kind of encouraging her to fly on the other side, which is to be brave in her voice and to explore her own ability to um, articulate herself. And in the movie, she kind of moves into writing and we don't really get like her trajectory and her career. You know, it does end on, you know, they they kiss and it fades into the end. Uh, But at the same time, there is this hint that she's actually, as much as we love bookshops and independent bookshops, and as much as there, there's a discussion in the film about bravery, and I know I'm sure at this at that time being an independent bookseller was already a brave thing, but now more than ever we look at anyone opening any kind of shop and think that that's a brave move. But 
in some ways it was the one that she inherited and so in some ways it was quite a safe choice for her it was a life that was handed to her by her mother and now she has to reckon with what she actually wants to do and take the brave step and say what would I actually like to achieve with my life and not just carry on the legacy of my mother and so there's this kind of opposite motions where Joe Fox is both destroying and inspiring <laughs> greater things in her life. Uh, and that's what makes it such a compelling story. And even just on a basis that like, there is the reality as we all know, and really tragically know that, you know, big business does tend to win. <laughs> and if we, if we have to make the imaginative leap that you know true love in this kind of rom-com setting is possible we probably shouldn't expect the audience to also make the leap that and somehow the independent books will also win out <laughs> right yeah i to i totally agree i mean we needed the dose of reality or else i think we i think they would have lost the audience you know i mean it I could see how that would be tempting to say, well, let's just let's just wrap it all up, and then we, maybe he just disowns the business. Like that's never gonna happen. Like it's it's not. Yeah. So we have to make it work. Like we have to, like say that um, a love story like this can happen even with sort of the 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 forces of the world being what they are. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I th I always kind of felt like the allusions they were like, oh, to her writing, it were kind of like a like little consolation prize or something. They were like, see, she'll be fine. Like she's e <laughs> she's editing a children's book, and you're like, yeah, but like her business was destroyed. <laughs> but um, but you're right. I mean, like on a character level, I mean, she even says something like, you know, maybe nobody will remember me, but plenty of people remember my mother, and like all this. So I mean, clearly this bookstore is about her mom as much as it is about anything else. So I'm I'm sure just as like a person, this was like a big leap for her uh, to go do something else. You know, that's what um, Birdie, who's such a great character, the sort of um, mm -hmm. eccentric older lady who may have had an affair with uh, generally Simone Franco, <laughs> um, uh, is, uh, says, you know, you're daring to, you know, believe you can have another life and, um, you know, she assumed she would always run this shop and now that's not the case. So uh, we've all been in situations where something we assumed would be the case isn't and we have to make a plan B. So she's in plan B. And so I think that the audience can uh, relate to her in that way. Um, but um, I think another part of You've Got Mail that is so charming is the like, nine well what was this it was a two that was a 2000 i'm trying to remember the exact year it came out um i should have looked that up but you can look it up fast but it's like it, it's such a nostalgic um internet era <laughs> uh, uh that you know that maybe i was chris and i were when we were watching it we we're like there's gonna be people who watch this and um you know, like our kids or something when they watch it are going to be like, what's that like dial up tone? Like, the, you, you know, like, like you've got mail, like isn't going to mean anything to them. And I yeah. mean, I, I was, you know, quite young when that was um, a thing, but I remember it. I remember I had a, I had an AIM username, <laughs> stuff like that. I had an AOL account. Um, yeah, it was 1998 is when it came out. Mm -hmm. So really uh, I remember also reading that Nora Ephron was a big um, 
early proponent of blogs and things like that. She had a very romantic idea about email and blogging and was like, this is going to be great for writers. You know, this is going to democratize things. People can have their own outlets and everything like that. And then I think she got a little disillusioned when she was like, okay, so people are just writing and not being paid. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there are uh, some, some things that have not worked out. But I think that that sort of optimism about what the internet at its at its very best and what it still can offer at its very best is um is connection you know i mean and that's what we hope for um but i just i just love i love i love the nostalgia of that of that internet use i i kind of wish that is i wish we kind of still had aim or something like that was like um there was something about being on the cusp where you still had a landline and you Mm -hmm. had your desktop you know like where they these worlds were still separate enough yeah. Um, that it was like an isolated part of your day rather than something that was integrated into every right. aspect. Yeah, like but you like, would sit down and be like, I'm going to check my email, not be like, pick up your phone and be like, yeah, I'm always getting, you know, 8,000 messages or whatever. So very nostalgic for that. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, your point about her blogging, I didn't really know that, uh, her interest in blogging, because that makes more sense of another film of hers that I love, which is Julie and Julia, uh, which has that I think everyone kind of prefers the Julia Child section (laughs) but it does make sense of like the the idea of blogging your way through writing this book as as being a a beautiful thing that she she's able to pull out those kind of better parts of the internet I agree and I think it's I think her genius is being able to make romantic those things that are um, in a more modern world, like you said, the whole internet thing, it feels like it's just bridging the gap. Because to me, I would say any movie that does feature the internet is kind of at least still a modern film in that it is still recognizably the world we still live in. But you're right that it's just on the cusp because it's a very different beast at that point in time it's not really and you know it's so old now that people will look back on it as like a period piece in the way that I think of you know like 80s teen movies or something like that that this is um you know like a a vintage or nostalgic thing for people whereas yeah I'm still of the age where I grew up in in the right time for this movie and yeah that it's such a it's such a hard thing to make modern life in some ways romantic and she does it so well and i think it's because she manages to combine modern elements with a much more old fashioned romantic sensibility and that's what makes it so appealing so you know there's a kind of modern backdrop to the movie at least in the ways that people are talking like you mentioned the father and the grandfather both have these like second or third or fourth wives with their kids who are you know under 10 so that that great joke joke of joe fox's the kids that he's minding are his 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 aunt and his brother (laughs) yes his his aunt and his brother yeah and his aunt is like nine and his brother is like four (laughs) so uh, he's like we are uh an american family (laughs) so you have these more kind of modern elements or even like you said with the online or the 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 cyber world as they were calling it that there are these kind of less traditional or less uh kind of um old world elements in it but the central points have this deeply 
old worldly feel to them like the the relationships are very chaste and the yeah. romantic ideals are very high like we even describe they both have girlfriends and boyfriends at the start but and they're living together but, but there's like almost no evidence of actual romance no, between them no, yeah. they might as well be roommates i mean there's like you it's it's very <laughs> they, they might as well have that like 1950s thing of them both sleeping in like absolutely <laughs> yeah that's kind of how i i mean like that seems to be what's going on i mean you know you, you can't even imagine like uh like you know like kathleen and what's his name in the movie is, is it greg Frank. 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 Okay. Yeah. And like, they're just, they seem like friends. I, I don't know. They're like, like, he's just this wonderful eccentric and he, he's like collecting typewriters and writing these super dramatic, you know, uh, there are so many lines of his that just crack me up. Like when he meets, um, Patricia, when he meets, uh, uh, Tom Hanks's girlfriend at the, at the party and she's like, we should talk. Have you ever thought about doing a book? And he's like, yeah, like something relevant for modern day, like the 19th century Luddite movement in England. Like, you know, it's just, he's like just this total, like to the point where she literally suspected him of being the Unabomber at one point. Um, like these are not like close relationships, but they are kind relationships. You see that. Yeah. And I agree with what you were saying earlier that it is like, a feat of its own that you know they are having an emotional affair but we don't really judge them for it like it doesn't seem i think it, it works because of the sort of innocence and chasteness of all of the romantic relationships that it's not such a it's not such a betrayal in a way that like a very um i don't know whether explicit is the right word but that a very tactile relationship might feel more of a of betrayal. There's a kind of sense of them all being, they're, they're not quite totally entangled in each other's emotions in the way that you might expect. And yeah, that in in some ways it allows you to pull off these, these great romantic moments in a way that I think a lot of modern rom-coms really struggle to do. Like, I think to me, it's kind of, uh, important that it ends on like they don't even hold hands like it ends on the kiss and that's it and to me that like that's almost always the marker of like a really good rom-com i'm not i'm not necessarily a prude about these things like i also like films like um notting hill which is a lot more modern in its romantic sensibilities in the way that the two characters interact with each other but at the same time uh, my friend Chloe and I have a, a sliding scale that we talk about that like the success of a romantic movie is like like that the 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 sort of sexiness level is low and that the romantic level is quite high. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> I mean I just it's not um there's nothing gratuitous in you've got mail, which I I love. Like, you know, it's just mm -hmm. it's um yeah, it's it's not even about being prudish about it. It's just like so often I find it so unnecessary and it actually mm -hmm. complicates your feelings for the characters because you're like, wait, there's a lot on the line here and we're just supposed to mm -hmm. pretend that's not the case. Um, yeah. So I think you're right that that it is a very a very chaste movie in that way. Um, and it is like and I think of in you and Sleepless in Seattle, too, it's like we they don't see each other till the very end and we just see them like walk out together like that's all we see <laughs> you know that's it yeah. and we can make certain assumptions and they look at each other and you're like okay that's that's that but um it's uh it that again is the testament to the words you know that like that is mm -hmm. that's their connection and i think that's why um it works so well and on the literary note too like we were saying we were noticing that even the way they talk to each other when they p become friends sort of in part two of the movie is often very um 
literary the way they talk like when he's saying when he has that when tom hanks has a has an incredibly charming speech that always makes me cry you know he's like i w- i always wonder like you know if you hadn't been shop around the corner i hadn't been fox books you know and i just call you and ask you out for as long as we both shall live and like then he says you know oh i wish you would you know i wish you would forget this thing about me pushing you out of business but it's like saying oh i wish you would is kind of an odd thing to say in like real life and it's sort of but because we've established um Chris brought this up when we were when we were watching it that like because we've established this sort of literary style of their speaking it sounds natural between them um so I think the whole relationship becomes elevated to this literary level um because that's what their relationship is (laughs) Yeah, and I think the other thing that she really draws on, you mentioned about her her parents being these screenwriters, like she's so deeply in the world of those older movies, those classic movies, and in a really beautiful way that I think also allows for these sort of heightened, like hyper-realistic or heightened expressions, like you were saying, that... uh, uh, that there is more space for them in those kind of older movies that aren't aren't striving for a kind of very similitude. They're very much like actually creating a world of the movies. And actually, on my own podcast, a couple of just before the summer, we did an episode on like golden age classic mu- musicals talking yeah, I about. I love that episode. That was great. Oh, thank you. Uh, but about the kind of escapism that they. Um, enjoy and she absolutely pulls on that like not only from I think it says that like Carrie Grant used to drop in for dinner at her parents house Mm -hmm. like she was directly uh, interacting with this world but she draws on it so um, you've got mail is essentially kind of based on a film called the shop around the corner with Jimmy Stewart in it, which I did watch. I think it's one of the examples, the few examples of the remake being better than the original. I completely <laughs> agree, yeah. Like, there are definitely charming aspects of that movie, yeah. but it is, I mean, it's, yeah, You've Got Mail is much better. It's a much better yeah. movie. Um, it's a yeah. different story, too, but uh, mm-hmm. I think it's just also objectively a better movie. But um, Yeah, and she knows where to make it more complicated, like adding the class dynamic and the business dynamic. That In the original movie, they're essentially just co-workers who can't really get along. But she also knows where to actually pull from because there's a scene in a cafe that runs almost beat for beat identical in both movies and so she knows what's actually working about that movie and how to draw it into the modern world and i think it's so and there's also an example in uh, sleepless in seattle they just keep going on about an affair to remember and there's this kind of motif through it about meeting on the (laughs) what what building do they meet on in the end is it the Uh, empire State? state building yeah yeah that yeah, that it has to have this kind of heritage for it to to make sense because they know. I think one of the characters even says, "You don't want to fall in love. You want to fall in love in a movie." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and then you have that scene of um, it's like um, Rosie O'Donnell and uh, Meg Ryan like sitting on the couch, just like quoting like the the movie. fair to remember, mm-hmm. like with tissues in their hands, they're like, "The winters are cold this time." <laughs> you know, they just they've clearly memorized every line. And there's something to be said with said about that. That's another great um, Nora Ephron quote is that she said, you know, be the heroine of your own life, not the victim. And I think yeah. that um, that is always the message of her movies is that mm-hmm. you like you have the right again, sort of as we were talking about earlier, to claim this story. And for goodness sake, 
decide to be the the heroine of it you know um you deserve the good ending and it's possible uh and i think she again she gives us sort of this hope of um you know that these romantic stories aren't just for you know uh jane austen you know like this Mm -hmm. is this is possible today and you just kind of have to look for it and believe in it um and it it can happen a happy ending is a valuable and beautiful thing. Yes. But, and she had at least a bit in her life, like we mentioned, she had sort of tumultuous relationships, uh, but she ended up with someone in the end that she she was sort of devoted to, yes. as far as I know, for the duration mm-hmm. of their lives. But yeah, I think that happy ending, it really is so important because it is like those old movies that they, they give us that escapism and that hope that has a grounding in the need for it in real life as well. I have a great quote here where um, it was talking about how she she engaged with old Hollywood and it says, she was criticized at the time. People said her movies were old fashioned, but old fashioned because they made people happy. I think she was very conscious of that, of her upbringing, of being around the business and the movies that she loved. And she tried to continue that. Nora used to say, there's nothing wrong with making people happy. Mm. And I think that's such a beautiful sentiment to have that like in some ways we can so easily turn our turn our noses up at something so simple as making people happy. But that's exactly what those movies do. They just, they make you happy. Make you happy. And, and they kind of make you yearn for a better version of ourselves that like you said that, you know, I'm not saying that we would all speak like characters in You've Got Mail or When Harry Met Sally even, but that we can aspire to a more romantic way of expressing ourselves and engaging with the world around us. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and today I think a lot of times people assume uh, a movie or um, a TV series or something is only serious if it's sort of bleak, you know, if it's rather nihilistic. Um, And I always thought nihilism is very easy. You know, I mean, we can like, that's the easy route. Uh, It's harder to make people uh, believe in happy endings in a way, you know, like we, we want to, but, um, it's a lot easier to just say, yeah, like it's, it didn't work out, you know, it didn't, you know, it often doesn't, and it didn't again. Um, so I think, uh, it's very brave what Nora Ephron says that, um, yeah, like she doesn't shy away from, you know, well, she still lost her business, but there's still a beautiful ending, you know, that life is complicated. Like it's not one thing or the other. Um, there's a, I think it's Flannery, yeah, it was a Flannery O'Connor quote that's like, you know, that, and of course, Flannery O'Connor is not light, <laughs> light reading. I wouldn't, I would <laughs> not like, categorize that as like Nora Ephron style. Um, I'm just preparing an episode for my own podcast on Flannery O'Connor. So I've done just about a 180 turn from in, in coming on this podcast from researching yes. that episode. Coming on yeah, one. dark. But I think you're <laughs> thinking of what said nihilism is in the air we breathe it's everywhere yeah and uh but Flannery O'Connor viewed sort of art as like the opportunity to confront nihilism but say Mm -hmm. there's always a chance like she said uh, I'm trying to remember I wish I'd written down the quote but it was like it's like um you know everything at least has to be offered the opportunity to be restored and we see that again and again and of course with her sort of theology of grace and everything like that but she's saying that everybody has has the opportunity for restoration and grace and happiness Um, whether or not we take it is a different question and often her characters do not but I think it's beautiful to see I think in Nora Ephron movies we get to see people 
claiming that chance, you know, to say that um, I do believe I, I, I have been given the opportunity and I'm going to sort of reclaim something here. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that I, I just I love her movies so much. And you've got I mean, you've got mail might be my favorite movie. Like if I'm being if there's a movie that I want to just put on, like you can't go wrong. So um, I, I was texting my friend Chloe when I was rewatching it for this and we both independently said at almost exactly the same time that our favorite movies are the Lord of the Rings, which mm. no, I will not pick a particular one between them. It's okay. just, it's just a monolith, the Lord of the Rings. And then you've got mail. <laughs> that's, that's genuinely. And for myself, I think maybe the next one down would be singing in the rain. So mm. those are, I love those it. Are I, my favorite. We were, yeah, Chris and I were talking about it and we were like, I think we love you've got mail and it's so, and like the Godfather. <laughs> And it's like, could we get? Well, honestly, Godfather might be number four. And when you were talking about <laughs> when you were talking about idealized New Yorks or like types of New mm-hmm. Yorks, in my mind, I was like, I don't know how people would say uh, how people feel if I said, "Oh, I also love the New York of the Godfather." <laughs> I mean, very family oriented in many ways, you know. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, but in the God the Godfather, I mean, wow, that could be a whole other topic. But I mean, even in that movie, it's like it's such a um, it's such a dark movie. But I think it it pre-, pre it the premise is still that there's good and evil in the world, and we get we watch the characters choose wrongly. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I think a lot of movies today, sort of, there is no assumption of um, goodness as uh, even a yeah. possibility, um, and. Uh, yeah, so, but it's just so funny to think of my categories of movies. Like, I equally love The Godfather and You've Got Mail, but I think that they are both amazing films and we've got to just let go of this sort of genre snobbery and just say a good movie is a good movie when we see it. So, <laughs> and I'm feeling more and more that you and I are kindred spirits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a unique pairing. So, the fact that you love that too is uh, definitely, I would assume, relatively unique. But, um, yeah. So, so The Godfather was the type of movie I allowed myself to enjoy when I was a teenager. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, that that can really get into some angst. So that's a good teen yeah. movie for sure. But um, and I'm a huge Diane Keaton fan. I think she actually does. I think she does a great job in those movies. Um, yeah, she's amazing. But um, well, we've been talking for an hour and I could talk to you for another hour, but I won't abuse your time anymore but um i did just want to first of all ask uh where people could find you if they want to sort of follow along with the podcast things you're writing things like that where they can find you and then also if you'd like i know you sent i had never i had to look this up i'd never heard of uh this band before but um you have a music recommendation for us um so if you'd like to share that with us well for Following myself, my podcast, like we mentioned, I do realize I've mentioned the podcast quite a few times in this episode. I promise I w- that wasn't like product placement, but <laughs> it just takes up a lot of my free time. So it's what I think about when I, <laughs> whenever I'm totally not Totally understand. <laughs> but uh, my, my podcast is Risking Enchantment, and you can find it on all the usual places. It's on Apple, uh, iTunes, and Spotify. It's also available on my website, which is rachelsherlock.com, where you can find some of my writing. Uh, I do also write for, uh, I try to keep my website up to date, but some of the writing I've done is in some magazines, one called Levin Magazine. Uh, And so uh, they're kind of scattered around the place or in physical format, still, like we said, the the, the world of physical content. 
and I'm on Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And that's the same for my personal Instagram account, if you want to follow me there. And the podcast also has an Instagram account, uh, which is a Risking Enchantment podcast. So those are usually the easiest ways to find me. Uh, you can email me from my website, but you can also message me on Instagram, which is usually pretty reliable as well. And yeah, you asked me to put together a recommendation for this episode. So I chose, it's a set of four EPs, so four short albums by a band called the Oh Hellos. They're a really fantastic indie folk band. And I have to give a shout out to my friends. They're um, a family of brothers and sisters called the Conroys who introduced me to them. And they're a great band. They've done a couple of uh, themed albums on things like there's a, an album called Dear Wormwood, which is based on the screw tape letters. And they have another one, which is, uh, I think it's in the uh, Deep in the Valley, I think it's called, which is about the Narnia series, but in ways that are not sort of like grindingly obvious. They do a really good job of just being inspired and drawing elements and having kind of little motifs that reference it, but without it being a very kind of pedantic inspired album but the ones that i wanted to talk about were they released a series of four eps called the four winds and each of them is based on uh, one of the four winds of kind of the antiquity idea of these almost personified versions of the wind so the they come in two sets of two albums so the the first one were the kind of spring summer ones which were uh i believe that was notus and Sorry, I'm wrong. It was the summer fall album, which was Notice and Eurus, and then the winter spring album, which is Boreas and uh, Zephyrus. And they're kind of seasonally themed um, and they're really lovely to listen to. I would start with Boreas, the winter one. Uh, the last track on that is called Glowing and it's one of my all-time favorite tracks. They're just lovely to listen through, especially at this time of year, I feel like. They're just very um in some ways mellow and in some ways quite uplifting just really enjoyable uh eps to to listen to at this time of year love that thank you and i will see if i can find um find that track you mentioned and we can play it out of the episode but thank you so much for chatting with me it was so fun and i hope we can do it again soon i know we could probably find other topics to talk about so i'd love to chat with you again we're hoping to have you on risking enchantment so hopefully your list can find you there as well in the near future yeah that would be great all right thank you rachel thank you in the end i'm feeling more and more There won't be any end No ice walls No frozen firmament To clearly define The corners and lines Of our divine invention So paper thin You see right through it But I bet When you can't find an edge By a map I've written It could feel like the end To have to keep going
And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. <laughs>